Agency spending on blockchain is a tiny fraction of total technology spending, but maybe an important one, and it's growing, according to analysis by Deltek. Here with more on what they're spending and why, Deltek Advisory Research Analyst Alex Rossino. Alex, good to have you on. Thanks very much, Tom. Good to be here. And just set the basic stage for us, blockchain, which a few years ago was touted as the next thing since the jet engine or something, is just a very tiny little amount of money. Give us the numbers first, and then we'll talk about the uses and the use cases. Yeah, sure. Federal uh, spending on blockchain technology is uh, in the last three years has pretty much doubled. So whereas it was just over $5 million in 2020, it's now close to 12. So I know, as you mentioned, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the billions and hundreds of billions that are spent by the federal government on technology. But it indicates that there's work going on and that there's interest as well. And let me just ask this off-the-wall question. Could it be that blockchain is offered as one of the long lists of services by cloud services providers, and therefore usage of blockchain through something that the cloud offers is just buried in cloud spending but may not show up as blockchain? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I have definitely seen that trend when it comes to advanced analytics and when it comes to cybersecurity spending, so those kinds of capabilities. Blockchain spending is not quite as clear. There is some, but it's difficult to parse out exactly what might be delivered, say, as a software, as a service versus, you know, an on-premise use by our individual instances by uh, agencies. So my inclination right now would be to say that it's probably more just one-off uses by agencies for research and development and exploration. But I think that the cloud is probably a very viable avenue in the future. Sure. But in the meantime, you can buy blockchain as a type of software, just like you buy a database or a development tool. Right. You can do that. And this is one of the interesting things about the analysis that I did of the data I was able to find on FPDS. And that is that I'm not sure exactly which blockchains they are experimenting with. So if you go on any cryptocurrency trading site or anything, there are thousands of them, right? And they all have all different use cases. So they're called cryptocurrencies, but they actually are software. So then they have different uses. Many of them are for logistics. Some of them are for uh, supply chain tracking, cyber cybersecurity, things like that. So determining which ones they're actually experimenting with is something that I haven't been able to suss out yet. And you make the distinction between the blockchain itself and there's a lot of spending on blockchain analytics for right. forensic purposes or whatever. But mm -hmm. let's talk about who's buying it. The Air Force, by your analysis, is the largest, but everything else is civilian. So when you add up all the civilian, it way outweighs what DOD is spending. Uh, yeah, that's true. Air Force is really looking at it for logistics purposes and for uh, predictive maintenance. So they're kind of looking at tracking the different kinds of maintenance that have been done on different air platforms and then tying it to analytics. But when it comes to the civilian agencies, you see that uh, the, the FBI and the SEC and Treasury, which is really the IRS, are using blockchain data analytics in order to try and track down transactions. So I mentioned before that there are many types of different blockchain software, and many of them are called cryptocurrencies. In this case, we're dealing with cryptocurrency transactions versus blockchains that are being used for other software purposes. We're speaking with Alex Rossino. He's advisory research analyst at Deltek, and that's an important distinction, using it for research or for trying things and engineering types of stuff, but it's not widely in production as a ledger to store data that it's recalled except maybe that, for the Air Force. 
That's true. That's true. You know, there's some other places that they're uh, looking at it too, like um, at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. They're examining blockchains as a potential a solution to the quantum encryption problem. So you've probably uh, you know heard about uh, quantum computing uh, being a threat to current encryption methods, and so they're really experimenting with uh, how to use blockchain or integrate it as a way to harden encryption. So that's kind of fascinating too. Yeah, of course. What do they say? The Chinese have. Stopped- Stolen all the data they want. They're just waiting till they can encrypt it when the quantum comes around. So maybe, maybe right. you know, right. they've closed the barn door after the cow got out. But talk about the analytics side because I think in forensics and crime analysis, understanding what's going on with blockchains, which is discernible with analytic tools, mm-hmm. not your own blockchains, but the ones that are out there, right. is something agencies are getting into. Right. So one of the sort of great misconceptions about cryptocurrency in general is that it's anonymous. There are some that are designed to be anonymous, but it's really better to look at it as pseudonymous. Uh, I actually can't believe I actually pronounced that word correctly. Well done. Thank you. So, you know, anyone who uses cryptocurrency, you have a wallet or what's called a wallet and it has an address and that address is immutable for that blockchain. So, you know, if you have a Bitcoin address, then that's always going to be your Bitcoin address until you create a new wallet. So any transactions linked to that address can be easily tracked and traced using advanced analytics. It's just a matter of agencies that are seeking to identify illicit sort of transactions. So whether it's... um. I don't know, cartel activity or uh, oligarch activity in Eastern Europe or something like that. They want to uh, try and identify which blockchain wallets or which Bitcoin wallets are linked to that individual or that entity. And so that's what the analytics are for in order to try and unpack that. Yes, because they are simply long hashes, right? The uh, addresses and the transactions. And it's actually possible to trace that to an individual or to an IP address. It is if you have confirmed the identity of the entity or the individual linked to the address. So once that's done, uh, you can track any uh, activity on that wallet. And this is what agencies are trying to do then? It looks like it, yeah. The ones that we're looking at are either law enforcement uh, or cons- talking about are either law enforcement or tax enforcement or uh, trading enforcement, so Securities and Exchange Commission. So, you know, they would, the only reason I can think of that they'd be using blockchain analytics is really to uh, unpack these transactions and understand where money, quote unquote, is going. And I also wanted to ask you about the inclusion of blockchain requirement in some of the big government-wide acquisition contracts coming out, if they ever Mm -hmm. do come out. How does that get baked in? And what are they asking for, the agencies? So they're asking for expertise in engineering and working with these kinds of technologies. It's still a very new thing, especially in the federal government. It's not like cloud computing where everyone has cloud instances now and everyone knows uh, how to use SaaS. But when it comes to blockchain, it's still being uh, really understood and developed, especially the use cases. So when you have large vehicles like Polaris that actually listed as a requirement to have expertise in it, it bodes well for investment for the future. Uh, but it also creates a little bit of a problem for the vendors who will be bidding on these contracts because finding people who actually have this kind of expertise is very difficult. It's very niche right now. And also the private sector pays incredible salaries for that expertise. So government and its contractors will be competing like they are with cybersecurity talent, will be competing for people who have that kind of expertise as well. 
That's interesting because having that expertise as a requirement doesn't mean it's going to get sold. It's almost like telling people to have anchovies in the cupboard, even though nobody's going to be wanting anchovies. But it's a cost there for the companies to maintain this knowledge that may or may not be something on a task order. That's true, and it may never appear. And if it does appear, then you have to scramble. And a final question. I mean, blockchain has been around for decades in banking and finance as their ledger. Why now? What's different now than was different 20 years ago? So I think it's really uh, a couple of things. One is uh, simply the attention that's being drawn to it. Bitcoin is now uh, approaching $31,000, and that's the blockchain that really got everyone's attention when it came out in 2009. But the other thing is simply the efficiency of the technology. Something like Bitcoin is extremely inefficient because it's very slow. The transactions are very large for the most part, and there have been attempts to uh, mitigate that through uh, different kinds of things like adding protocol like Lightning protocol, etc. And they've had some success there. But there are others that have been developed like uh, Stellar or XLM, which has been developed by IBM, which are extremely fast and they are extremely useful. So you can use them and apply them to different sorts of cases, cybersecurity, identity verification, again, like I've said, tracking logistics, supply chain. So the uses are uh, growing and the attention is growing because of the viability of the technology. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand, it's like chicken and the egg, but uh, they kind of work in a circular pattern now. Alex Rossino is Advisory Research Analyst at Deltec. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with his blockchain analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up 
in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where 
others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.